two readings for our sermon today, one from the Old and one from the New Testament. We'll begin with a reading from the book of Ecclesiastes. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads, and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They're given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there's no end, and much study is a weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. And from Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not associate with them, for at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what's pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it's shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And don't get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with all your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Father, bless our hearing now, we ask in Jesus' good name. Amen. So I'd like to talk to you guys for the next three weeks about Ecclesiastes, that Ecclesiastes text, the 11th verse. You guys look at that for a sec. What is the picture in that verse, verse 11? It's a picture, kind of an enigmatic verse, but it's a picture of a shepherd giving two gifts. One gift is the words of the wise, and the other gift is the collected sayings. So they're kind of related gifts, as you can see. And if you know anything about the so-called wisdom literature in Israel's Bible, this is a very recognizable picture, isn't it? The Lord gives wisdom, right? This is, the Lord is the shepherd here, I think we can confidently say. But what I'd like you to notice, especially, is what these gifts do. What's the effect as the shepherd gives these two gifts? On one hand, the preacher tells us, these gifts prod like goads. How many of you know what a goad is? So I'm from farm country. A goad is a long metal stick with a pointed end. And if you're trying to move cattle, the trouble with cattle is cattle sometimes don't want to move at all. Enter the goad. You stick that thing in the rear of an ox or a cow and that thing will start to move. Well, the words of the wise are like that. On the other hand, these gifts do something else. Because these gifts are like firmly fixed nails on which you can hang a whole bunch of stuff. 
I was imagining this week what it would be like in my house if every single nail in my home and in my furniture were to dissolve. I'd like to be outside if that happens, because a whole lot is hanging on those invisible nails. Well, the words of the wise are like that. When we hear wisdom, when we hear words that give us clarity and give us understanding, words that show the way, God is prodding us with those words towards things that we might not naturally want, like the cow doesn't want to move. But he is also at the same time that he's prodding us, he is fixing certain things in our hearts and in our lives on which we can hang all the, all the other stuff. Now, as you listen to wise words, these could be in the Bible, obviously, they could be in conversations, they could be in videos you hear, books you read, lyrics of a song, films, you could hear the words of wisdom in various places. But what you will notice as you listen carefully to wise words is that underneath these wise words, there are three goading, unsettling questions that all wise people, all thinking people wrestle with. One I'm going to call the identity question. What makes us who we are? The second I will call the inheritance question. What's to become of us? And the third is what I will call the instruction question. How do you live? What makes us who we are? What's to become of us? How do you live? These questions are just there. And God's wisdom speaks to these questions. And as God's wisdom speaks to these questions, we find that God is not just goading us with those questions, which can actually be quite unsettling at times. He is shepherding us toward understanding some, some real answers to these questions. And you'll notice the preacher addresses these three questions very briefly at the end of his book. Paul, in the Ephesians text I read, as we'll see, talks about these questions in the early church. And my goal in this little mini-series of sermons is I want to goad us as a church toward the settledness that I believe God wants us to have on these fundamental questions of human life. And today I want to start with the identity question. The identity question. I want to do two things briefly. I want to spend a few minutes nailing down our identity, and then I want to feel, spend a few minutes feeling, feeling the goad of our identity. So let's take a moment now and just kind of nail down our identity. When we talk about identity, what makes us who we are, how do we think about that? So where in the preacher's text, that little Ecclesiastes section I read, where in there does he talk about identity? who we are. I don't think this is obvious, actually, but for an Israelite reader, part of Abraham's family, identity bells would have gone off when they heard that phrase, fear God. Now, that's not obvious to us, but let me try to explain why, in verse 13, when the preacher says, fear God, that would have set off identity bells. And to see why, I'd like to recall the opening of what was still one of my favorite films, and that is, I'm going to date myself here, The Born Identity. How many of you have seen The Born Identity? Okay, that's good. So some of you have know, know what's going on. The, the, the opening of this film is a young man's body is fished out of the Mediterranean Sea by some fishermen. Only the difficulty is, it turns out he's alive, but once he kind of wakes up, the trouble is he has no memory whatsoever. He doesn't know his name. He doesn't remember anything in his life. The early scenes are of him just kind of sitting on this fishing boat, just like staring. And, you know, he, he exists... <laughs> I mean, you can see him, he's there, but even to himself, he's just kind of a blank. He's just kind of a shell, because he has no recall. Now, as time goes on a little bit, he starts to discover, as he reacts to different situations, he has some strange skills. In fact, he discovers that he has some skills, for good or ill, that 
mean he must be some kind of highly trained military operative. And he's just kind of puzzled by this. He has no idea where this came from. And he has no sense of identity at all. And I'd like you to think with me about why he has no sense of identity. He does not know who he is. He does not know what he is or what he is capable of because he has no idea where he has come from. He has no sense of the story of his life. He has nobody that he belongs to. He has no sense of identity whatsoever because he has no sense of what he's part of. He just showed up in the Mediterranean. That's all he knows. Now this, you know, this young man, he could go pretend that he has an identity. He could pretend to be someone. He could make up a name. He can make up a story. Other people could maybe give him a name. Other people could make up a story about him. But we would know you can't just make this stuff up. You can't just make up an identity. That's pretending. There's a real identity. He's not in touch with it. And the thing that troubles him quite a lot is he has no recall whatsoever of who made him the way that he is. And he wants to know who made him and who made him what he is. And he starts investigating this, and as he investigates, he starts to uncover some very, very strange clues that his maker wants him dead. And this young man ends up running from a maker whom he is trying to remember who wants him to die. And the plight of that young man, eventually we find out he's Jason Bourne, the plight of Jason Bourne, I was thinking this week, is almost a kind of inverted mirror image of the plight of sinful man. Because according to Israel's scriptures, sinners, sinful man, is running away from a maker whom he has forgotten, but he's trying to forget. Unlike Jason Bourne, who wants to remember his maker, sinful man does not want to remember his maker. He's forgotten his maker, he does not want to remember. And the difference, too, between Jason Bourne and sinful man is that Jason Bourne's maker wants him to die. Sinful man's maker wants him to live. But sinful man is running, forgetting, and he wants to forget. And the problem for sinful man is that when you forget God, you cut yourself off from your own identity. John Calvin once said something utterly profound. He said, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself until he has first looked upon the face of God. You do not know yourself. You do not really know your story, where you've come from, who you belong to, until you know the God who made you. And that is Israel's story, isn't it? Israel's story is that unlike other nations, our maker found us. <laughs> he found us when we weren't even looking for him. He called us. He restored our memory. Our maker told us who he is, and he told us who we are in relationship to him, and he told us what this means for our future. You hear this identity language in Israel's Psalms. It is he who has made us, and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. That's identity. And so when the preacher says, fear God to an Israelite, see, we hear, be afraid of God, he's going to hurt you. That's not what they heard. When they heard fear God, what they heard was, Trust in the Lord. Trust what he has said about himself. Trust what he said about you. Trust what he said you're a part of. And step out on that thing that God has said about himself and about you and about your future. Step out on it. Act it out. Like, don't act like you're an orphan because you're not. 
Don't act like you're a stranger, because you're not. Don't act like an enemy. You are his. Own it, man. That's fearing God. Own that he's your God. Own that you belong to him. Act that out. That's fearing the Lord. And I'd like you to notice something else in Israel's story. The Israelites were to fear the Lord, trust what he said about himself, about them, in relationship to him, about their future. But the Israelites were also to do something else. They were to teach their children's 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 children the fear of the Lord. It was supposed to be normal in Israel to say, I have never had a day in my life of amnesia. I've never had a day in my life of being Jason Bourne. I've never had a day in my entire life when I did not know what I was a part of. I didn't have, I've never had a day in my entire life where I didn't know these are my people and this is our God. I've just never had a day. I don't know what it's like to have a Jason Bourne experience because they were to teach the fear of the Lord to their children's children's children. The faith of Israel and the identity of the Israelites was to be not just individual faith and identity, it was to be generational faith and identity. You hear this in the song at the Red Sea. This is my God, that's individual, and I will praise him. This is my Father's God, there's the generations, and I will exalt him. And God promised Israel something. He promised Israel that this was just the beginning. One day, God promised Israel he was going to bring all the families of the earth back home. He was going to save the peoples of the earth from their willful amnesia. He was going to restore their place in his family. He was going to give them their life back the way Jason Bourne needed someone to give him his life back. God said, I'm going to do it, not just for Israel, but for the nations. Tell you who you are, who your maker is, bring you home, give you your life back. And the promise was that this generational faith and generational life with God, this generational identity that Israel enjoyed was one day going to be enjoyed by all the families of the earth, not just the physical descendants of Israel. And of course, that ex is exactly where things pick up, starting on the day of Pentecost, right? As the Holy Spirit now begins to move in the world and he starts bringing Gentiles to faith in Israel's Messiah. So Israel has a savior king, a Messiah, and God begins to bring the Gentiles to know and to trust in Israel's Messiah. And that, you know, that's what Paul's doing here in this Ephesians letter. Earlier in the letter, I just love this. Earlier in Ephesians, if you read it, Paul emphatically points out that the Gentiles, he says, you guys were once far off. No more. You have been brought near by the blood of Jesus, he says in chapter 2. God has brought you home. And he says in chapter 2, that these Gentile believers in Jesus, they now share Israel's identity. Listen to the identity language in chapter 2. He says, you're no longer strangers. You're no longer aliens. You are fellow citizens. You're members of the household of God. That's identity language. In chapter 3, he says, the great mystery God has finally unveiled is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're going to inherit God's kingdom with us, people. They're members, he says, of the same body. They're partakers of the promise in Christ, like that's identity language. Or as he says here in chapter 5, to Gentiles, he says, you guys are beloved children. You're beloved children. Now, I'd like you to notice that shift in identity language, now in what we call the New Testament, after Jesus. Because the way Paul talks to these people, the way he speaks about their identity here, they're not just God's people. They're not just the sheep of God's pasture. 
the identity is kind of ramped up a bit. They are God's children. The one we belong to, the one whose world and family and kingdom and story we're a part of, he isn't just our maker. He isn't just our deliverer. He isn't just our king. He is all of those things. He is also our father. And that's why in the post-Jesus days, baptism matters a lot. Because Jesus said, what did he say about baptism? Like the first thing Jesus says after his resurrection about baptism, baptize people into what? Come on, people. Baptize them into the name. See, a father gives a name to his children. This is fatherhood language. We are baptized into the name of God. That is, that is child-to-father relationship. And in baptism, the, the, the believers in the early church understood when you are baptized, it is God saying to you, Christ died for you. Christ rose for you. You're now part, as one of my friends said, you are part of God's clan. You're in the family. You are, as Paul says in Romans, as a baptized person, you are under grace. And so reckon yourselves, like count yourselves dead to sin. That's life outside the family. You're dead to all that sin. You're alive to God. Or as the preacher would put it, fear God. Fear God. And as surely as Israel's faith and Israel's identity was to be generational, there is no missing this in the New Testament. No matter how much people try to erase it out, it is there. So it was to be among the Gentiles. Because Paul speaks to the Ephesian Gentiles, and what does he say about their kids? He says, bring them up in the best pagan wisdom has to offer. No, bring them up in the Lord. He says to the children themselves, y'all, you little people, obey your parents in the Lord, right? This was generational identity. He says to the Gentiles in Corinth, your children are holy, H-O-L-Y. They are holy even if one of their parents doesn't believe because you're a believer, your children belong to God. They're sanctified, they're holy. And it's in that book that he says, I baptized the household of Stephanus. Because households are generational, and the name is given to the household because the thing's going to go on, the, the identity is going to go on. It was to be normal in the early church for people to grow up in these believing homes and say, I've never known a day in my life of amnesia. I've never known a day in my life where I didn't know who my father is, who my savior is, who my God is, who my people are. I've never been Jason Bourne. I've never had a day in my life when I didn't know what I'm a part of. Y'all can feel free to say amen. You are Presbyterians after all. It's all right. I'd like now, having nailed down our identity, because that is our identity, to feel the goad of this identity for a minute. Because God wants that identity, brothers and sisters. You are God's children. He wants that identity as his children to prod us, to be a fixed thing. We hang everything else on to be a nail that doesn't move, but also to be a, a goad, a prod. Goad us toward what? I want to show you very briefly, God wants that identity to goad us toward rest and goad us toward action. Here's the goad toward rest. I'm going to goad you guys today. I'm actually a little wound up about this. I will try to be cool. Here's my goad toward rest. You're God's children. Constantly reinforce God's love for you and your children. You are God's children. I want to goad you, constantly reinforce God's love 
for you and your children. Because there is a huge strand of Christian teaching. Some of you have been infected with it. And this huge strand of Christian teaching says that the actual threshold of Christian identity, the thing that really gives you a right to call yourself a child of God, is your personal experience or your personal choice. Some of you actually believe this. That what really gives you a right to call God your Father, to, to call Jesus your Savior, is that you've had some kind of experience or you've made some kind of choice. The Americanized version of this loves the choice part. Americans love being the ones who make the choice. And the American version of this teaching is that nothing is real for me until I give it my free and informed consent. Nothing could possibly be, free, be real for me unless I have voluntarily opted into it. The kind of stupidity that made people say like, oh, that's not my president. Do tell. As if you can't be a part of anything without freely you know, choosing it. You actually can, but Americans hate that. I choose every reality in my life. That's sort of the American way, yes? And there's a Christian version that says, no relationship with God could be real unless I have voluntarily chosen it for myself, knowing all the facts, having read all the, small, the fine print. There's a more mystical version of this, very popular, I might add, in our Presbyterian circles, a more mystical version that says it a bit differently. It's not so much now about the personal choice being the real thing that makes you who you are, but rather here it's the experience. You'll hear all kinds of Presbyterians say things. I've heard baptism sermons. I wanted to throw my hymn book because the impression you are given is that baptism is a hollow thing and participating in church life is a hollow thing. Hearing the word of God is a hollow thing. Being catechized is a hollow thing. Obedience, even biblical obedience to the Lord, is all hollow until I can show evidence that I have had a born-again experience. There are churches that just literally say this. They, I have heard, people have said this to my baptized children. Have you been born again? Because until you have some kind of intense experiential fruit in your basket that indicates that you're the real thing, all the rest of it could not be the real thing. Beloved, may I just train a little bit of artillery on that for a minute. It is a foundational piece of biblical religion that what ultimately grounds my standing before God, what ultimately grounds my identity before Him, what makes me who I am before Him, are you with me? It is not what I do. It is not what I say. It is not what I choose. It is not even what God Himself enables me to do or God enables me to say or God enables me to choose, and thank God he does enable us to do and say and choose all kinds of things we would not, but it is not that that makes me who I am. What gives me standing before God, gives me an identity before God, is what God has done for me and what God has said to me. Amen? It is the work of the Lord for me. It is God's promise to me, which is yes and amen in Christ. It is what God has spoken, God has done. That makes me who I am. Because if I am looking at my choice, if I'm looking at my experiences, be they never so enriching, if I'm looking at my faith, my obedience, my works, my fruit, do you know who I'm still looking at? I'm looking at me. 
And the gospel takes my eyes off of me onto the living God who has worked for me and spoken to me, and that is where I put my feet down. That is why we preach baptism in this church the way we do. God's promise is the unsinkable ship. Not your experiences, not your choices, not your works, not your fruit. The word of the Lord is the unsinkable ship. I am your God, baptism says, and I have named you with my name. That is the bedrock. We have got to preach this to ourselves, brothers and sisters. We must reckon ourselves and our children dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is wearisome to me watching churches lose their kids because of identity issues. This is why this is a core piece of our life here at Trinity. If you want to have a second or third generation of serious Jesus followers, I will tell you that identity is not all you need, but it is crucial. If our children do not know that God is their God, if they do not know that they are His, if they do not know that He loves them and that will not change, why would we think they would love Him? Do you think you are somehow increasing holiness in your children by shaking their identity? I'm not yelling at you, I am, but I mean I'm not. This is serious. We want people to follow Jesus to a fourth generation. What enables that is the love of God. Do not confuse identity with maturity. Your kids are not mature. Work on the maturity. God knows they need work but reinforce the identity. That's my little bit too wound up goad toward rest. Now more gently, I'm going to goad you toward action. Constantly reinforce God's love for you and your children. Second thing though, second goad toward action, imitate the love of your father and brother. Be imitators of this God who loves you. I'm almost done. Can I, but don't, please, don't check out. It is a problem if you're a child of God and there's no resemblance. Okay? It's a problem if you're a child of God and there's no resemblance. Do you know one reason why your life is hard? You don't know why God sometimes feels like he just keeps doing this in what you're trying to do? Because God doesn't care about you feeling happy and comfortable. You know what God cares about? You being like him. Your father is relentlessly going after what one friend of mine calls your in-curve. You have in-curve. I have in-curve. There is a great turning in on the self that we all have. And God is relentlessly working to out-curve us, to turn us outward so we become like our father in heaven. We become partakers of his holiness, which is love. So what does resembling our Father look like? What does imitating God, being an imitator of God, look like? Does it look like going to church? Well, I go to church, check. Does it look like being put together on Instagram? Like, is that it? No. Walk in what? Imitators of God, what does it mean? Walk in love. That's it. What is love? I mean, it's all kinds of things. It's listening. It's prayer for people. It's sharing meals. It's speaking truth, it's forgiveness, it's de-escalating conflict, it's honoring each other, it's purity, sexual and otherwise, it's giving more than is needed, it's faithfulness, it's not quitting, it's diligent work in our various callings to contribute value in the world, walk in love, imitate the love of your father and brother, 
Because if it is possible, as I just said, to confuse identity with maturity, where we're only going to confer identity on people that we decide are mature enough in their faith and life, that is one problem, that's one ditch. There's a ditch on the other side of the road. It is also possible, and I've watched Christians do this, to sit and hear the good news that Jesus is for you, and you now have an identity in Christ. And what that becomes is something you hide in. You, th- th- this, people just never want to hear anything, 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 except Jesus did it all. And nothing defines me except Jesus did it all. Well, in a sense, that's very true. But do you know why Jesus did it all? To completely change you. And you can hide, crazily enough, in this so-called identity in Christ in a way that never actually grows to maturity. So that somehow I'm not at all like my father, and I'm not working on that in any kind of determined, effectual way. That That is a problem, brothers and sisters. Walk in love. That's active. And our identity as God's children goads us. Let me just goad all of us a little bit. Can I just ask you even right now, picture one person who's going to be in your life this week that maybe you don't find super easy to love. And just ask God to do this. Father, show me one thing, one thing to do for this person, for their well-being. Just one thing to do for their well-being before I walk into your house again next week. Walk in love. Imitate the love of your father and brother. Do you know why this matters? I heard a disturbing statistic this week. I did not know this. Recently, quite recently, for the very first time in our nation's history, church membership in this country among Americans fell to under 50%. Up to one-third of Americans say they have no religion at all. We in the North American church are not reinforcing our identity. And if our cynical neighbors who have all kinds of reasons to be cynical, if they are going to be drawn to this God that we worship, it is going to be almost certainly through seeing us imitate our Father who is in heaven. This is not a time to be sounding off on Twitter. This is a time to be loving as our Father in heaven loves. I'll close with this. Paul says we are the temple of the living God. That's our identity. As God said, I'll make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. And then listen to this. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every deficiency, every defilement of body and soul, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. That's the mission. God help us, for you are a good Father. In Jesus we pray, amen.